Well, hello, this is Eric Topol, and I'm thrilled to have a chance to have a conversation with Magdalena Skipper, who is the editor-in-chief of Nature. And uh, of historic note, uh, back in 2018, she became the first woman editor of Nature in its 149 years, and only the eighth editor of all times, uh, having taken over for Philip Campbell, who had been previously the editor for 22 years. We're going to ask her if she's going to do 22 or more years, but we're going to have a fun conversation because there's so much going on in medical publishing. And I think you know that Nature is the number one cited science journal in the world. So welcome, Magdalena. Thank you very much. Real pleasure to be here and chatting with you today, Eric. Thank you. Well, you know, we're still, of course, in the pandemic world. It's obviously not as bad as it had been, but there's still things going on with new variants and long COVID and it's not, the virus isn't going away. But first thing I wanted to get into was um, how did nature handle this frenetic craziness? It, I mean, it was putting out accelerated publications on an almost daily or weekly basis and putting out like a speed velocity of having a review uh, the likes that we've not seen. This must have been really trying um, for the whole crew. What, what do you think? It was. And, you know, the first thing, I, I think I will recognize two things at the same time. So the first one, as you say, at a time such as the pandemic, but actually at any point when there is a, a new health emergency that is spreading, especially something as unknown, as new, as as it was the case with SARS-CoV-2. And of course, in the beginning, we really knew nothing about what we were facing. It, speed is of the essence. But equally, what's truly important is, of course, the rigor itself. So that combination of needing to publish as quickly as possible, but at the same time as rigorously evaluating the papers as possible, that was actually quite a challenge. And of course, you know, what we sometimes forget when we talk about, well, researchers themselves, but also editors and publishers, is of course, as individuals, as human beings, they are going through all the trauma, all the um, uh, constraints associated with various lockdowns, concerns about the loved ones, perhaps those ones who are in their care, you know, in many cases, um, of course, there would have been uh, the elderly who are uh, individuals would have been concerned by or indeed children, because, of course, schools in so many places were closed. And all the while, while we were dealing with these very human, very ordinary daily preoccupations, we were very focused on the fact that we had a responsibility and a duty to publish papers and evaluate them. Uh, as quickly as possible. It really was an extraordinary time. And, and, you know, one other thing I should emphasize is, of course, it's not just the manuscript editors who evaluate the research. It's the reporters on my team as well who are um, going out of the way to find out as much information to report as robustly, uh, find as many sources to, to interview uh, as possible. And, and, you know, I also have to mention colleagues who work on production side of nature, actually make nature happen 
be published online on a you know daily and then of course weekly basis and literally from one week to the next um, all our operations had to be performed from home and it's really remarkable that the issue was not late we published the issue just as you know from as lockdowns came in and as it happens the production side of nature is mainly based in in london so most of that team effectively found themselves uh, not being able to go to the office effectively from one day to the next. So it really was an extraordinary time and, and a time that, uh, as I say, was, was a time of great responsibility. But looking back on it, I'm actually incredibly proud of, of my team, what, what they achieved. Did, did they hold up? I mean, they, hadn't, they didn't get burnt out from lack of sleep and lack of everything. Are they they're still hanging in there? So uh, they are hanging in there. You'll be you'll be glad glad to hear. But I think you know very importantly, we were there for one another. In so far that we could be, of course, we were all at home remotely. We were not meeting, but we had virtual meetings, which were regular, um, of course, in as a whole team, but also in in subgroups as we sub teams as we work together. That human contact, um, in addition to, of course, loved ones and families and friends, that human contact in a professional setting was was really, really necessary. And um, clearly what I'm describing was affected all of us one way or another. Uh, sometimes there is a tendency not to remember that also applies to editors, publishers, and of course, researchers themselves. I mean, very clearly they were at the forefront of the issue, facing the same problems. Well, a new challenge has arisen, not that the pandemic, of course, has gone away, but now we have this large language models of AI, generative AI, which you've written editorials at Nature, uh, which, of course, uh, is it human or is it the machine? Um, what do you think about that challenge? Well, um of course, you know, the way I like to think about it is AI, of course, broadly, is has been around for a very long time, a number of decades, right? And um, steadily over the last several years, we have seen um, AI emerge as a really powerful and important tool in research right across a number of disciplines. The reason why we're all talking about AI right now, and I really think all of us are talking about AI all the time, is, of course, specifically the emergence of generative AI, the large language models that, that you just mentioned. And they sort of uh, burst onto the, the scene for all of us uh, really last year in the autumn with ChatGPT and, 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 and so on. Um, but it's important to remember that, of course, when we talk about AI, there are other models, other approaches, and machine learning in general has been creating quite some revolution in research already. Uh, you know, probably the best example uh, that will be familiar to many of the li listeners uh, was, of course, AlphaFold, um, which, you know, Nature published uh, a couple of years ago and, and has been... Um, has really revolutionized structural biology 
But of course, there are many other examples which are now becoming, developing much more rapidly, becoming much more, I would say, commonplace in, in research uh, practice, you know, not just predicting uh, structure from, from sequencing, uh, from sequence. Uh, and I say just so flippantly now, of course, it was such a, such a, is, it continues to be such an incredible tool. But of course, now we have AI approaches which actually uh, suggest new protein design, new, new small molecule design. We've had, in the last couple of years, we've had um, uh, identification of new potential antibiotics um, that are effective against um, uh, bacteria, bacterial strains that have otherwise been resistant to any known antibiotics. And, and of course, it's not just in biomedicine, material science, I think is very helpful, hopeful um, when it comes to, to AI uh, tools as well. And then, and of course, generative AI indeed helps us in some of these um, contexts already. But I think your question perhaps was more focused um, on the the publishing, the communication, the sort of output of, of research, which of course is also very important. Um, in some way, the reason why I answered, I began to answer the question the way I did is because I'm actually very excited about harnessing the power of AI in um, augmenting research itself, mm-hmm. um, helping navigate enormous data sets, um, generate hypotheses to be tested, um, uh, finding new ways to to, um, uh, advance uh, projects. I think that's a very exciting um, opportunity, and we're just beginning to see the first applications of it. Now, in terms of publishing, you you referred to uh, some editorials that we wrote about this, and Right at the beginning of the year, there was, um, I think, a flurry of excitement associated with the ability of generative AI to indeed generate text. Um, uh, There were some um, manuscripts which were published in journals that were co-authored by ChatGPT. Right, right. I I even believe there was... um, uh, an editorial which was co-authored by ChatGPT. So, in response to that, we felt uh, very strongly that that clearly there was a need to to come out with a, a clear position. Just as in doing research, we see AI tools as tools to support writing, but clearly they don't have the um, the ability to fulfill authorship criteria. Clearly, there cannot be authors. Clearly, they, they must only remain as tools supporting researchers and individuals writing and communicating their research. And so we, we wrote a very clear editorial about this, essentially summarizing what I just um, explained and asking uh, the community to be transparent about how AI tool has been used, just as you would be transparent about your methodology, how you have arrived at the results uh, that you're reporting and and 
results that support your conclusions. So for us, it's a it's a relatively simple set of recommendations. As I say, we ask for transparency. We understand it can be a tool that can be used to help write a paper. Uh, what we also ask at this stage um, that uh, generative AI tools are not used to generate figures or images in papers simply because there are a number of outstanding um, copyright issues, a number of outstanding privacy issues. They remain unresolved. Um, and for as long as they remain, main, they remain unresolved, we feel it's not an appropriate um, application of these tools. Um, so that's our editorial position. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. Now. I mean, what do you think if you write a manuscript and then you put it into, let's say, GPT-4 and say, please edit this? Is that okay? Or is that something that, and it's acknowledged that the paper was written by us researchers, but then we had it uh, tweaked by a chatbot, um, or is that something that it, it wouldn't go over too well? Well, my preference, and actually what I would hope, is that if you were writing this paper and then you felt the need to um, put it through a, a chatbot, as you just put it, although I find it hard to imagine that you would find no, it for that. I, I wouldn't do it, but I know there's people out there that are working no, no, on it. Yeah. Absolutely. But then I would hope that the last pass, the final word, would rest with you as the author. Because, of course, if you're using a tool for whatever it is you do, you want at the end of the day to make sure that what that tool has returned is aligned with what you intended, um, that you perform some kind of a sense check. We, of course, all know that although um, GPT-4 um, has less of a tendency to hallucinate, so to essentially come up with fabricated um, um, sort of statements and, and reality, if you like, it remains an issue. It can remain an issue. And very clearly, um, any any scientific communication has to be rooted in facts. Yeah. So in the scenario that you propose, I would hope that if a researcher felt compelled to run the manuscript through a chatbot, and for example, one, one consideration may be... Um, uh, for an individual whose English is not their first language, who feel may feel more comfortable with a sort of um, uh, support of this kind. But in the end, the final check, the final sign-off, if you like, on that manuscript before submission would need to come from, from the researcher, from the corresponding author, from, from the, the writing uh, group. Um, and indeed... Um, assistance from a, from a chatbot would need to be uh, disclosed for us. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because you can almost foresee that um, you, you, the, the shortcut of having to go get all the references and all the links, you could say, you know, please insert these, but you better check them because they may be fabricated. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out and the difficulty of detecting what is written by a uh, a large language model versus a, a person. Um, now, another topic that I think is really um, in play 
uh, is the preprint world and publishing, you know, via preprint. And as you know, uh, there's been uh, Michael Eisen and, and uh, the whole uh, idea of how things would move with his journal, uh, E-Life. Uh, um, e mm -hmm. And also, um, you know, you and I, were together at a conference. I organized um, Future Genomic Medicine many years ago at the kind of dawn of preprint. And some people in the audience say, what's a preprint, right? Nobody else ask about that now. But it's come a long ways over this decade. And where do we go with this? Um, should, should journals like the top journals in the world, like Nature, uh, require a paper to be vetted through the preprint mechanism? Um, where, where, where is this headed, do you think? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And, and you know, by the way, I have such wonderful memories from of that conference. I, th I think this must have been like 11 years ago or something yeah, like that. Yeah. It was a long time ago. And, um, and I actually remember um, presenting this, this vision of a rather radical vision of, of the future of publishing. And here we are in the future as compared to then. And we have moved relatively little by comparison uh, to where we were then. But back to your question. So, you know, the first thing to say is that, of course, just as a reminder, preprints have been around for more than two decades now. And, and of course, they initially were really spearheaded and advanced by the physical sciences community. Um, archive itself is, as I say, more than two decades old. So, you know, for us at Nature, as a multidisciplinary journal, where, of course, we've been publishing in the physical sciences since the very beginning of our existence, um, as soon as preprints first emerged in those communities, we realized that we could coexist very harmoniously as a journal, peer-review-based journal, with preprints. So when initially biological sciences community embraced them and bioarchive was established and then of course many other archives um, and then subsequently actually really spearheaded by COVID the medical and clinical community began to embrace preprints. Um, in many ways for us that was nothing new it was just an extension of something that we worked with before although our own um, our own policies have evolved. So for example, during the pandemic, um, we actually mandated deposition of papers that were submitted to us that were COVID related. We mandated their deposition in a preprint server. The authors had the choice which server they deposited, but we wanted those manuscripts to be available to the community for the scrutiny as soon as they were finalized, as soon as they were actually written. So while we were reviewing them again as quickly, as rigorously, but as quickly as possible, the preprint was already available for the community. Um, just before the pandemic, as it happens, we also took a step forward with our policy. So previously, let's just say, we were completely fine with preprints. We saw preprints as compatible with submission to, to Nature and, for that matter, to the other journals in the Nature portfolio. But actually, um, just in the year before um, uh, COVID started, we decided to 
actively encourage our authors to deposit preprints. We could see that preprint sharing had great advantage, you know, the, the usual sort of advantages which are often um, listed uh, first are, of course, ability to um, make that primary primacy claim, make a stake that, that you have been working on something and, and this is your project. You, you have a, a set of results that you are ready to communicate to, to the community at large. And of course, another very important one is that sort of community and, and almost public um, form of peer review and, and ability to comment. Um, and incidentally, you know, I remember, um, as you know, um, you know my my history as an editor very well. We, we've known uh, each other for a long time. I remember when the genomics community, which is sort of my my background, the sort of my old hat, if you like, that, that I used to wear. Uh, when the genomics community began to embrace preprints, um, especially the population in evolutionary genomicists really embraced this idea that uh, this was like a like a group peer review mm. and the authors of those preprints were very grateful to the community for improving the papers before they were submitted to journals or sometimes that sort of um, community review was going on while a paper was being considered at a journal and we as editors actually encouraged um uh, sort of formal submission of these reviews, if you like. I mean, formal maybe is the wrong word, but we were saying that we would take those comments into account mm. when evaluating papers. So, um, so there has been an interesting evolution that more and more um, disciplines, more and more fields have embraced preprints as a way of disseminating information. Um, preprint servers themselves have also grown and matured in the sense that there is now realization that, for example, um, clinical preprints need um, a higher degree of scrutiny mm -hmm. they are posted on a preprint server than maybe, let's say, theoretical physics or theoretical biology preprints. So overall, the, the, all communities collectively have, have grown and matured. Um, where are we going with this? I mean, who knows? I was predicting 12 years ago, um, you know, a, a bit of a different, more advanced future today. Um, it's very difficult to predict the future. I do think, however, that uh, what we're seeing today, that sort of hand-in-glove coexistence of preprints with journals, with peer-reviewed uh, papers, is going to continue into the future. And I think actually that's a really valuable and interesting combination. So it's a, it's a great development to see and great to see that communities right across disciplines have really embraced this. Yeah, I think it does uh, complement, obviously, the traditional peer review of a few uh, expert reviewers with, you know, could be hundreds, if not thousands of people that weigh in on, on a preprint. So yeah, it's fascinating to see. And as I still remember the vision that you portrayed for it and how we were quite not quite there yet, but uh, I'm sure there'll be further evolution. Now, another area that I think is particularly good to get your input because you're 
a woman in science, as you mentioned, you know, grounded, uh, obviously in genetics and genomics. And here you are, you know, one of the most influential women in science at a time when there's been a reckoning is uh, women in science have been shortchanged historically. I mean, for hundreds of years, um, do you see that this is starting to get better? Are, are there palpable signs that we're finally getting kind of equal rights here? Or are we, is it, is it, is it, is it just still a long fight ahead? Do you know, um, so the, the optimist in me, and, and I should say, you know, my, my glass, my glass is always half full. The optimist in me says that it is getting better, but the realist in me has to add immediately that the change is too slow. It really is too slow. Um, we, we do see many more women prominently um, able to make the contributions that they should, they can, and they should make to whatever discipline, uh, whatever aspect of the research community and beyond uh, they wish to, to make. I still think it costs them too much. I still think we don't appreciate and support women sufficiently. Maybe we have moved on the bottleneck in the in the pipeline a little bit further towards um, more seniority, but we still we still don't sufficiently support women, as I say. We I think we still default to an expectation that successful women in science, in research more broadly, will somehow emulate how success has looked in the past. And that's a shame. That's a shame not just for those women who are trying to come in and make a difference, but it's a shame for all of us because it means that we're denying diversity in that picture of success. Yes. Um, so yes, I think I think that we have seen many changes, but I think the change is not happening fast enough. Yeah, one of the things that I've noticed uh, since of particular interest in AI is the the very profound imbalance of researchers. The gender imbalance there is just, you know, I'm not even sure if it's ten percent women researchers in, in AI. So that has to get uh, changed, and so this. There's so many things that are holding us back, but but that's certainly one of, of many. Absolutely. Um, and, and if I can just add, there are some outstandingly influential female researchers in the AI field. As you say, they are just outnumbered. Yes. I think not given the opportunity to, to fully blossom, if you like, considering their capabilities and, and their, their contributions already. You know, it's so true. I, I just interviewed Melanie Mitchell from uh, the Santa Fe Institute, and I work uh, with Fei-Fei Li. Um, and when I when Fei-Fei Li and I spoke uh, some months ago about a book that Kate Metz, the New York Times journalist, had written, and I say, why didn't he bring up any women in the whole book yes. who work in AI? I mean, she she obviously um, was was uh, did not take that particularly well, and as did I. 
So one of the other areas that I think you already touched on, which is separating nature, the flagship journal, from the nature portfolio of, I don't know what it's up to now, 200, 300, I'm not sure how many journals are in. So do you, do you have to oversee that? Do you have input on that? Because what I worry about is, you know, people quote a nature journal and it may not be, you know, at that level that you would be proud of. What are your thoughts about this endless proliferation of the nature portfolio? Well, I, I'm, first of all, I'm not sure if it's endless, but... Um, well, that's good. <laughs> so so I um, uh, so let me, I think in your question, you touched on a number of things. So first of all, a clarification. So my role is as editor-in-chief of Nature, and of course, that is my main focus. Um, there is another aspect to my role, which is uh, chief editorial advisor for the Nature Portfolio. So in that sense, um, each of the journals within the Nature Portfolio has its own chief editor. Uh, but by virtue, I guess, of my seniority and also by virtue of multidisciplinarity of nature, um, I have this advisory role uh, to my colleagues in the other journals. The I like to think about the Nature Portfolio as, a, as an ecosystem, actually. Um, and it's an ecosystem, like any ecosystem, it has different niches, each of which fulfills a different role. Some of them are bigger, some of them are smaller, some of them are very specialized, others are more general. And I think, um, you know, working with um, researchers for many years as an editor now, I can see benefits to having that sort of almost an ecosystem type approach to publishing. Um, you know, for example, we, we mentioned already um, earlier that um, in my previous sort of incarnation as an editor, my focus was on genomics, um, especially in the context of human genomics. Um, of course, starting from the Human Genome Project, these were very large, or have, where, why, why am I using past tense? They are, to this day, very large collaborative projects involving many different labs, many different approaches. These days, that they're not just um, uh, focused on genomics, but of course, other omics go hand in hand with them. So when a project comes to fruition, when, when it comes to be published, there are many different um, pieces that need to be communicated, many different papers of different sizes of different value. And for example, um, uh, what value maybe is the wrong word, of different utility. Mm. So for example, there may be a, a flagship paper that is published in the pages of my journal of nature, but there may be um, uh, papers that specifically describe development of methodology that was co-funded as part of the same stage of the project. And those papers may be published in Nature Methods, which is part of the Nature Portfolio. Um, there are other journals that are part of Nature Portfolio which have different editorial bar. And so, you know, one example um, is Scientific Reports, which is a journal which does not require conceptual novelty in the papers that it publishes. Of course, it requires rigor and, and um, uh, robustness in the papers that it publishes, like every journal should. But there is utility in publishing papers in a journal like this. There may be, um, 
replications that are published there that uh, further add further um, evidence to support conclusions that are already well known, but nevertheless, they're, they're useful. Um, I should, however, add that in nature itself, we also publish replications, right? The, 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 there are different um, uh, different degrees of uh, influence and impact that, that, of course, different studies, be they replications or not, uh, they can carry. So, so that would be my my way of that is my way of conceptualizing the nature portfolio, um, and you know, coming back to your to your comment that it seems like it's endless. Um, I think um, well, no, nothing is endless, of course. No, nothing right, nothing right. grows forever. Um, I do think that we have in in the in the in the launches within the nature portfolio we have been able to capture and at the same time serve an interesting evolution in the research um, ecosystem itself so the final comment i will make on this is if you look at some of the more recent launches in the portfolio they've been what we like to call thematic journals such as, for example, Nature Food or Nature right. Water. Right. And here we're really capitalizing on that multidisciplinarity of these emerging themes that, especially in the context of sustainable development goals, have acquired their own identity. They don't belong to one discipline or another discipline. And, and so these journals, they're new journals, relatively new journals. Some of them very new. Nature Water is, is, is quite new. But um, they provide a focal point for researchers who come together to solve a particular set of problems from different disciplines. And I think that's an interesting function um, in, as I say, for the community. Yeah, there's no question some of the newer journals and their transdisciplinary mission, uh, they're, they're needed and they become extremely popular and well-cited very quickly to, to prove that. So um, along that line, um, obviously the public is all fired up about paywalls. And, uh, you know, and obviously for COVID, there was no paywalls, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, do you see someday that journals will have a hard time of maintaining this, I mean, you have a what I consider an extraordinary solution, which is the Red Cube uh, postings of you can access. You just can't download the PDF. And I wish authors would always routinely put that out there uh, because that would solve part of the problem. But do you think we're going to go to a, a a free access that's much more wide, um, perhaps even routine in the years ahead? So certainly. Um open access, as in ability to access a manuscript, published manuscript, without any payment or barrier um, associated with a Creative Commons license, is something that is um, advanced as a, as a preferred future by many researchers, by many funders, um, and for that matter, actually many publishers as well. You know, let me make one thing very clear. As an editor... I would love as many people as possible to read the papers that I publish in my journal. I, that, of course, should go without saying. Sure. Um, at the same time, 
publishing papers, of course, is associated with a cost, and, and that cost has to be somehow covered. In the old days, um, it was exclusively covered by um, library subscriptions or site licenses or personal subscriptions. Now the focus is shifting, and of course, Nature itself, as well as the other um, uh, research journals, such as, for example, Nature Medicine or indeed Nature Water, as I mentioned before, um, are what we call transformative journals. So effectively, we are hybrid journals that advocate for open access. So today, when you submit a paper to Nature, you can publish under the traditional publishing model, or you can choose to publish open access associated with an article processing charge that should, in my view, be part of your costs of doing research. Because after all, I am a firm believer in the fact that publishing, re publishing your research should be seen as part of doing research, not sort of an add-on. Uh, add now, I'm glad you mentioned uh, uh, ReadCube and uh, this functionality that we call ShareDit. Um, we developed it actually quite some years ago, um, I would say at least a decade ago. Um, it remains curiously underappreciated. Yeah, I just don't understand it. Yeah. Exactly. And, and we, we inform the authors that they are free to use that link. And, and just to clarify, it's a link, as you, exactly as you explained, to a, an online version of the paper. It's the final version, the record version of the paper. You can't download it, but you can share that link. Anyone can share that link once they have it infinite number of times. So it's not like the link expires or it's a, a finite uh, number of, of uh, that it has a number finite number of uses. In addition to that, um, nature, and for that matter, the whole of Springer Nature, uh, is part of Research for Life. Now that's an organization that provides free access to all content from publishers, and Springer Nature is not the only publisher that's part of Research for Life, that provides um, full access to all of our content in the countries which are designated as low and middle income countries by the World Bank. So that, we've been part of that, and, and uh, previously um, uh, Hinari for many, many years, in fact, decades. Again, that is curiously underappreciated, including in the low and middle income countries. So, you know, recently I had an opportunity to um, uh, do some visits in Africa. And my, my take home message there was, if there is one thing that you remember from our conversation or from my presentation, please remember about Research for Life. Yeah. Because that content is freely available if you follow if you go to our content through research for life and incidentally there's also training which is available there so um uh, part of nature portfolio in addition to journals we have uh, nature master classes which is training for uh, researchers and that is also completely freely available uh, in those countries so there are a number of approaches to, to getting uh content um, um open access is definitely growing but there are those other ways 
to gain access to um, content which is not open access at the moment. I'm really glad you reviewed that because a lot of people who are going to be listening are going to really cue into that. Um, now, the last question for you is, you know, it's not just every Wednesday, 51 or whatever, 50 weeks a year that you're getting the journal ready, but it's every day now that you're putting out stuff in the, on the Nature website. Yeah. Features that are, by the way, free, or full access, uh, and many other things to keep nature out there on a daily, if not minute-to-minute -minute basis. So this is really a big charge to, you know, do this all so well. So, um, you know, what keeps you up at night about nature? Is this, uh, this must be a very tough position. So um, the first thing I would say that um, is that, of course, um, it's, it's not me. I'm just the person here talking to you representing nature i have an outstanding team i've met and, them and they're amazing yeah yeah and it's really them who are making it possible on a minute by minute certainly day by day uh, basis and so the reason why i sleep relatively well is thanks to them actually okay, okay. but more but more broadly um and this is a thought which is bigger than nature itself um what actually keeps me up at night these days is the rather difficult light in which science and research mm. is portrayed these days increasingly. And I think um, it's very unfortunately being used to, um, to support other goals and other ends, uh, forgetting about the fact that science is an ongoing process, um, that science takes um, steps back when it needs to revise its position, that it still continues to be true that sci science progresses through self-correction, even if that self-correction doesn't happen overnight. It takes time to realize that a correction is required. It takes time to evaluate judiciously that correction is required and what kind of correction is required, right? These are the things that, of course, you and I know very well. But um, the sometimes, if for individuals who are not close to the process of how science, research, fact-based discovery is conducted, if you just look at information on social media or in general media, you may walk away with an impression that science is not worth paying attention to, um, that science is in some um, deep crisis. Right. Um, and I think that's, that's a shame that that's a picture that we have. Other things that need other things in science, in research that need correcting, that need sorting out. Of course, there are. We mustn't forget that research is done by humans, and and uh, after all, um, it is human to err. But um, but overall, 
that that's actually something that keeps me up at night. That overall, I really hope that those of us who are engaged um, in one way or another within the research enterprise, we can continue to advance the right kind of image um, that it's not perfect in some artificial way, but but actually at the same time, it's the only way that we can move forward, we can understand um, the world around us, and we can wake, make the world around us better, actually. Yeah, I'm so glad you've emphasized this because just like we talked earlier about distinguishing between human content and AI generated, here we have science and anti-science blurring facts, blurring truths, and basically um, taking down science as a search for truth and making it uh, trying to, you know, obscure its mission and and um, in, in many ways, uh, we saw it with not just anti-vax, but it's much bigger. The political motives are obvious, uh, extraordinary, particularly as we see here in the U.S., but other countries as well. So, I, you know, I, I, I almost didn't hit you for that as a question just because it's so profound. We don't have the answers, but the fact that you're thinking about it tells, tells us all a lot. So, uh, Magdalena, this has been a joy. I really appreciate all your candid and... Um, you know, very thoughtful responses to some of these questions, some of them pretty tough questions, I have to say. And uh, I look forward to our conversations and chances to visit with you again in the future. And congratulations again on taking nature for five years now, I believe, just past your five-year anniversary. Now, you could say that's small out of 155 years, but I think it's a lot, uh, particularly since the last few years has been, you know, really challenging. But to you and your team, uh, ultimate kudos. I'm on the nature uh, site every single day. I mean, even I don't even on vacation, I'll be checking out the nature site. So you can tell that I think so highly of the, its content, and uh, we'll we'll look forward to future conversations um, going forward. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Eric. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.